My name is Keith Case, and like Drew, I'm on staff here at the church, and our scripture tonight is a little longer than usual. Uh, We are reading from Genesis chapter 37, and then Genesis chapter 45. Uh, In Genesis 37, we'll be in verses 1 through 4, and then 17b through 27, meaning we'll be halfway, starting halfway through the text there on 17, and then ending in 27, and then we'll jump to Genesis 45. Uh, one through four. Really looking at the life of Joseph, it's eight chapters, but, um, or more than that actually, but I didn't want to spend the entire, well, I kind of did actually want to spend the entire time just reading the story, but um, I want to unpack it for us tonight. So we're just going to hit some of the highlights here. You can follow along in the Pew Bible there, it's NIV, as well as the translation, uh, it'll be up on the screen behind us. This is Genesis chapter 37, starting in verse 1. Jacob lived in the land where his father had stayed, the land of Canaan. And this is the account of Jacob's family line. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Bela and the sons of Zelpha, his father's wives. And he brought their father a bad report about them. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age, and he had made an ornate robe for him. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word of him. Now we're jumping to 17b, and Joseph is going to look for his brothers out in the field, and it says, they have moved on from here, the man answered. I heard them say, let's go to Dothan. Joseph went after his brothers and found them near Dothan, but they saw him in the distance. And before he reached reached them, they plotted to kill him. Here comes that dreamer, they said to each other. Come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams." When Reuben heard this, he tried to rescue him from their hands. Let's not take his life, he said. Don't shed any blood. Throw him into this cistern here in the wilderness, but don't lay a hand on him. Reuben said this to rescue him from them and to take him back to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the ornate robe he was wearing, and they took him and threw him into the cistern. The cistern was empty. There was no water in it. As they sat down to eat their meal, they looked up and saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Their camels were loaded with spice, balm, and myrrh, and they were on their way to take them down to Egypt. Judah said to his brothers, What will we gain if we kill our brother and cover cover up his blood? Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. After all, he is our brother, our own flesh and blood. His brothers agreed. So when the Midianite merchants came by, his brother pulled Joseph up out of the cistern and sold him for 20 shekels of silver to the Ishmaelites who took him to Egypt. Now jumping to Genesis 45, verses 1 through 4. Then Joseph could no longer control himself before all his attendants. And he cried out, How everyone leave my presence. 
So there was no one with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers. And he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard him. And the Pharaoh's household heard about it. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? But his brothers were not able to answer him because they were terrified at his presence. Then Joseph said to his brothers, Come close to me. When they had, come, when they had done so, he said, I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now there has been a famine in the land and for the next five years there will be no plowing and reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by great deliverance. So then it was not you who sent me here but God. He made me father to Pharaoh, lord of his entire household and ruler of all Egypt. Now hurry back to my father and say to him, this is what your son Joseph said, God has made me lord of all Egypt. Come down to me, don't delay. You shall live in the region of Gosham and be near me, you, your children and grandchildren, your flocks and herds and all you have. I will provide for you there because five years of famine are still to come. Otherwise, you and your household and all who belong to it will become destitute. This is the word of the Lord. Where is Kathy Maxwell when you need her? Um, Kathy is a professor at PBA, and she like memorizes huge chunks of text and then kind of acts it out as she's uh, speaking it. And um, she could have done wonders with that uh, long series of text there. So we are in this uh, series all year we just started called Reimagine and uh, not reinvent, but reimagine. And last week we talked about reimagine your city. And I just wanted to commend two authors to you. Uh, one is Eric Jacobson. Uh, he wrote a book called Sidewalks in the Kingdom, New Urbanism and the Christian Faith. So I would really encourage you if you're interested at all exploring what does it mean uh, to have a Christian understanding of the city to write that down. If you want to continue exploring this idea of reimagining the city, write that down. Eric Jacobson, uh, The Sidewalks in the Kingdom. I actually just did a podcast with him this past week uh, because he has another book coming out. And he was interviewing us uh, about Providencia and our engagement with the city. The other is a woman named uh, Jane Jacobs. Anybody heard of Jane Jacobs before? Uh, Jane Jacobs is like the leading um, uh, scholar on urbanism and urban planning and development. Uh, she wrote a book called the, um, the Death and Life of the Great American City. Uh, most people would say that is like the book on, on um, urban planning that really shaped or reshaped America's ideas about development. And these are great resources to begin thinking about the city's architecture about street planning, about what makes a city healthy. If you don't engage with these authors uh, and you just hear kind of what we've talked about up here, you're just going to be engaged at kind of a surface level. These people begin to unpack the systems that are behind cities. They will open you, your eyes to things like uh, sewer planning and, and like street planning and like waste management at the city level. You don't think those are issues until you're a business owner in the city or until you uh, walk in your city. 
Um, but these things, he begins to unpack, it begins to open your mind to like, what does it mean to have a healthier city? And how, as Christians, can we help reimagine a healthier city here uh, in West Palm Beach? Um, there's one other name I just want to mention quickly. In the early 50s, when Jane uh, Jacobs was about to really become a leading voice in urban planning and development, she ended up meeting a man named William Kirk. And William Kirk was the director of the Union Settlement. It was run by the Episcopalian Church uh, in East Harlem to serve the new African Americans, Puerto Ricans, Latin Americans, and Africans that were coming into East Harlem. So the Union Settlement would help them kind of get their, um, their feet underneath them and get them landed in that neighborhood. And he launched incredible projects that led to mixed-income housing and other initiatives, um, but just had this huge impact on that neighborhood and a huge impact on Jane Jacobs. And the way it happened is um, Jane had a lot of the statistics uh, that were in the data that was showing that these new developments coming into, like, the slums and tearing them down and just building newer, nicer slums wasn't really working. It was actually hurting the people that lived there. And so Jane had this data on it, but she didn't know the stories. She didn't know the people. And William Kirk gave her a tour of East Harlem, and he showed her the people, and he showed her the stories. Because he was a priest, he was a pastor who was with the people. He spent so much time out in the community with the people that he knew all the stories, and he knew how it was all interconnected in this kind of mysterious way. He knew when the kids came out and played stickball and how the cars started slowing down at the end of the street during these hours because they knew that the kids would be playing stickball at that time. He knew all these dynamics that unless you live there, unless you're present, unless you're out in the community, you can't see. So William Kirk, to me, is kind of a hero, if you will, because he had this huge impact on Jane Jacobs, who then had this huge impact on urban planning and development. Stories. He was able to change Jane Jacobs' view of the story of the city, the way she imagined the city, because he knew the stories. And tonight we're talking about reimagining your story. What does it mean to reimagine your story? And we just read this, this story or some of the story of Joseph. Like I said, if we had read it all, it would be about 13 chapters. And I would invite you to take some time to read from chapter 37 of Genesis to 50 this week if you can, um, to sit with it and listen and to pay attention to how you feel. Pay attention to your feelings as you read it. I know a lot of times if you've uh, grown up in the church or if you um, are trying to learn something from the Bible, a lot of times we want to learn some kind of theological truth. But I would really encourage you just... Take some time to read it and pay attention to how it makes you feel. Some questions uh, for us tonight. Um, we say as a church we have three values, our city, your story, God's grace. And tonight we're dialing in on, on the story part. We're going to be looking at three things. One, why we value your story. Two, how we value your story. And then three, what it might mean to reimagine your story. If you were at Story Group this past week, we gave you these things called genograms or uh, little family tree uh, work, workbook things or uh, little printouts. If you don't go to Story Group, it's fine. Uh, we can 
tell you about those and I give you resources for those as well. I am going to be talking a lot about Story Group tonight because Story Group is a place where we really engage in each other's stories. And it's, it's a reimagination space. And for those of you who've been a part of it, you have seen firsthand, tasted firsthand at some level, what that looks like, what that means to be involved in this work. So we gave you genograms. First time I ever did one was when I was in a counseling program and I began to map out my family. Um, the three questions we gave you at Story Group on uh, this week was number one, what caused you pain in your family? Number two, what are you grateful for from your family? And number three, what patterns are you up against in your family? Like what patterns are you fighting against? Another way to answer that question would be like, my dad was like this and I'm never going to be, I promised myself I would never be like that. Or my mom was like this or my family was like this. They were always worried about money, but I'm not going to, I wasn't going to be worried about money. So what patterns in your family have you been up against? Okay, so number one, why we value your story. Why we value your story. Verse 1 and 2, Jacob lived in the land where his father had stayed. And then in verse 2, this is the account of Jacob's family line. There it is. The family line. The family tree. The genogram is right here in Scripture. Um, we often see these in Scripture showing up as genealogies. Anybody ever seen a genealogy before? Can anybody quote a genealogy scripture to me here? Nobody probably can, right? Because it's typically the part that you skip right over. You're like, okay, a bunch of names. I don't know who these people are. But the author knew who those people were. And not only did he know their names, he knew something else. He knew the story of their life. And it was assumed at some level that you too would know their story. So those names wouldn't just be like Uncle Tommy and Aunt Sue and Cousin Bobby. They would be names with stories, significant stories connected to them. And you would have known those stories. And at some level, what, we, what I'm inviting you here to tonight and through our church is to re-know the stories of Scripture, even the ones that you think are seemingly insignificant or of great importance. They're of great importance. These people that we see sometimes in genealogy, we can just think, oh, they're common folk. How can these people, you know, really matter that much? Or how can we even keep track of all these stories? In this in particular, um, these passages right here, what Moses is going to, or what the author of Genesis is going to unpack for us, is that these are the stories of the 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 families of Israel. He's going to be unpacking that lineage, that lineage that would go on to form this nation. And if you claim the Christian faith, or if you claim the Jewish faith for that matter, or if you claim the Muslim faith for that matter, you consider the 12 tribes as a part of your family story. And in the Christian faith, we say that we've been grafted in. So this family tree is now whose family tree? 
It's your family tree. These stories matter to our family. So you've got your geneogram here. And then verse 3, Israel loved Joseph. Awesome. That's a great thing that we know that Israel, uh, Jacob, loved his son Joseph. That is such a great thing. And then things get really hairy. More than any of his other sons. Anybody else here not an only child? Anybody else here ever had that debate? You guys are nicer to them than you are to me. We have five kids. They all think, except for Watson, he doesn't have that conversation yet. They all think that we're unfair to one of them over somebody else. It's a common conversation. You showed favoritism, except for Joseph didn't make any debate about it. We in our family were like debating, no, we're fair to everybody, you know. And Jacob's like, no, nope, he's a favorite. Um, I was in my old age, it has, and it has nothing to do with Joseph. It's not like because Joseph's, you know, sweet, kind heart. That's why I gave him this ornate robe, and that's why he was my favorite. No, it wasn't anything like that. It was all about Jacob. It was because I was old when I had this kid. It's like he's bragging, you know, like, I still got it. You know what I mean? Like, what is wrong with this guy? So, um, and he gives, he gives his youngest son, like, a robe to basically kind of show off that even in his old age, look what I can do. I think Jacob has, you know, a little dysfunction here that he's bringing into his family. And not, and it's, it's crazy because as he, you know, gives this to his youngest son and shows this favoritism, it's like he, he didn't even think through how this would impact his brothers. But in verse 4, when the brothers saw it, they hated him. When his brothers saw it, they hated him. Was there ever hate in your family? It's crazy how young it starts, right? Like, I was watching two of my youngest today, and, and they were playing with these toys, and the one that was a little bit older was trying to communicate with the one that was a little younger. You know, Matt, it was Lily and Watson, right? So, um, and, and Watson kept taking things, and I saw Lily just getting angrier and angrier and she was like sitting right next to me and she had like this little like blonde haired doll and Watson was leaning over and she was like getting ready to stab him with this plastic doll right and then she leaned over and she was getting ready to bite his back she was like so mad right we as we get older we learn to cover that stuff up right but but that's how real at such a young age you start like having these fights like give me my toy stop taking my toy but I was right there and I said stop Lily and she stopped um, but the point here is that Moses is not just inviting us into the story of Joseph and Jacob he's not just inviting us into the story of Israel he's inviting us into our own stories 
See, when you read an author, when you read an author that really captures you, what has happened is you all of a sudden are in the story with them. You got all the feels. You are with, you know, Harry Potter trying to save the day, right? You're in it. And that's where the author does the, the, the surgery. That's where the author does the work in you. It's because now you're in the story, they can start to reshape your imagination. They can begin to help you see in new ways. And one thing Moses is going to be inviting us to connect with here is the pain of Joseph. What caused pain in Joseph's life? And that's a question for you tonight. Is in your family growing up, what caused you pain? Maybe you can write that down, take it with you, and, and, and think about that this week. In story group, um, we do this thing where if you've ever come, you know the rules, but they are, number one, to silence your cell phone. Number two, everything is confidential. And number three, we have this rule called no fixing or no over-spiritualizing. And as we get further into this text, we actually will talk about one of the, the verses that sometimes I've heard used uh, by people that would be con kind of considered over-spiritualization at an at a inappropriate time. But what we instead ask you to do instead of fix is we ask you to feel. We ask you to, as you're listening to the story, this person's story, they've written this two-page story, that you would pay attention to what it is you're feeling inside as you're listening to this person read their story to you. So tonight, as I read, I'm going to reread verses 17 to 28. And I want you to pretend as if Joseph is here with us. We're at story group. We're sitting in a big circle, right? And Joseph is reading his story to us. And he's telling us about his childhood, this childhood story, this significant story in his life. And all I want you to pay attention to is what you feel. And when in the story you feel it, okay? So here we go, verses 17 to 28. Joseph has gone out looking for his older brothers. And I went to this man and he said, they've moved on from here. I heard them say, let's go down to Dothan. So I went after my brothers and I found them near Dothan. But they saw me coming from a distance. And before I reached them, they were already starting to plot to kill me. Here comes the dreamer, they said to each other. Come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of the cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams. When my oldest brother Reuben heard this, he tried to rescue me from their hands. He said, Let, let's not take his life. Let's not shed any blood. Let's not throw him into the cistern here in the wilderness. Let's, let's throw him into the, the cistern here in the wilderness, but don't lay a hand on him. And Reuben had said this to rescue me so that he could later take me back to my father. And when I got to my brothers, they took 
the robe from me, the one my dad had made, the ornate one. They stripped it from me. And then they took me and they threw me into the empty cistern, the one that had no water in it. And then I could hear them sitting down and eating their meal, having their lunch right there. And then before long, I could hear the caravan coming, and I could hear all the clanking and the bells, and I could hear the wealth and the money coming. And then I heard my brother Judah say, what will we gain if we kill him and cover up his blood? Let's sell him instead to the Ishmaelites and not lay a hand on him. So when the midnight merchants came by, my brothers pulled me out of the cistern and sold me for 20 shekels of silver. And they took me to Egypt. Now maybe it was a challenging thing to do that here in this group setting, in a big group. It was hard to kind of pay attention to all the lines. But did you feel anything? Did you feel anything as I was reading the story that time? Maybe you were feeling anger, maybe rage. Maybe you were feeling the betrayal, the loss. What you were feeling matters. What you were feeling as I was reading that story matters. It not only matters because of the story, it matters because of your story. How do we hold each other in our stories? It really, really matters. If Joseph were here tonight, what would you want, how would you want to hold him? If you didn't know the end of the story, you were meeting him in Egypt, maybe you would end up being one of his uh, cellmates, and you heard him tell this story to you. You have no power to get him out of the jail cell. What would you want to offer to him? What would you have to offer to this man who has just told you this story about his life, about his betrayal? Mr. Rogers, who we quote often here, said, There hasn't been someone I didn't fall in love with once I got to know their story. Maybe you've heard that other quote, Be kind. Everyone is carrying a heavy burden with them. You know, I've been doing story groups since like 2006. And one of the things that continues to be driven home to me every time I'm engaged in story group are those two things. There hasn't been someone I didn't fall in love with once I got to know their story. And be kind, everyone is carrying a heavy burden with them. And there'll be those nights where it feels like the volume is just turned up super loud. Super loud. And you realize it to a depth that you didn't before. Like, oh my God. How in the world has this person continued to survive carrying the load that they've been carrying? How have they continued to survive when they went through the abuse that they went through? 
how they continued to survive when they were so alone. So important that we learn to listen, that we learn to listen empathetically. And that's one of the things that we are training you in in Story Group. It's one of the things that if you stick around in this church, if you end up in counseling, which we refer everyone into counseling, if you have a meal with one of our staff uh, or somebody that's been around here long enough, you will experience what it's like to have somebody listen to you empathetically. When somebody will listen to you and say, me too. It is the birthplace of compassion. It is a birthplace of love. And it is so important that we continue to do it. See, somewhere along the lines, Christians kind of stopped listening to each other. Somehow along the lines, we've, we, we stopped empathizing with the alien and the stranger. Because somehow along the line, we were able to justify enslaving people in this country that, that we call a Christian country. It is so foundationally important that we as a people continue to learn to listen and to listen empathetically. This is the way in which I would say Joseph would have need to be held in the cell if he were here tonight. That we would meet him with our anger, our rage, our sadness, the betrayal. But there is one thing I would have been grateful for in his story. Maybe I'm reaching too far. Maybe I'm trying to find a silver lining. But I was grateful for just that sliver of hope with his older brother Reuben. That Reuben, maybe he wasn't brave enough or maybe he was just being strategic with his rest of his brothers, but that he said what he said that kept Joseph alive. I would have said to Joseph, man, I'm glad that your brother Reuben spoke up. That would have been something that I would have been thankful for. And maybe as you look at your family, that's one of the questions that I would have for you tonight too is, what's something in your family that you were grateful for, that you were thankful for? Maybe there was something in your family that kept you alive, that got you to this point. It'd be interesting for you to, to take some time to write that down. As I said, I've been doing uh, story groups since like 2005, and um, I'm not breaking any confidentiality when I say this, but when someone really shows up, when someone really allows themselves to feel their story, to be connected, when they dive into the darkest parts when they seemingly lose control, the wildest thing happens. Often it's tears, and it's hard to breathe sometimes for them. It's hard to get the words out. It's hard to explain maybe what's happening. But everybody else in that room is like this. 
in a room full of men. So a room full of men sit down. I could say, hey, you know, I built a skyscraper, my name on it downtown. How impactful am I? I sit down, hey, man, I've got a million in the bank. How impactful am I? Hey, I wrote a book about the 10 steps to parenting, and it's a bestseller, and you should read it, and I'll give you a free copy uh, later tonight. How impactful am I? I've changed the world. All these different ways that, especially as men, we try to impact the world, and nothing in my life has been more impactful than to see men do this work. Nothing sucks other men in like, what is happening? This is life or death right here. Something so powerful is happening. This is changing my life, whatever this is. And it's so rare. It's so rare to see it so raw. And what is it that they are tapping into? What is it that they are leading us to? Moses, I always say Moses. Some of our other scholars here would say the author of Genesis or the authors of Genesis. But Moses, when he starts writing to the Hebrew people, he's writing to them after they've been in slavery for 400 years. 400 years they've been in slavery. You know how they got there? This story. Brothers selling their brother into slavery. That's how they got there. But that's not the story that Moses starts with. What's the story that Moses starts with? Genesis 1 and 2, which we're going to unpack more in the coming weeks. Genesis 1 and 2. And what is the message that Moses is trying to drive home to a group of people who've been enslaved for 400 years? You are not slaves. That's not what you were born for. You were made for the garden. You are artists and you are lovers and you have been deceived. You have been lied to. And you have believed lies, and they have turned you against each other, and they are destroying you. That's what got us into slavery. But Moses is calling something in them out. All the way back, he's saying, but that's not what you were made for. I will tell you, as I read that story here tonight, you may be here and you are not a Christian. And we are so glad you are here. You may be here and you've been a Christian for 20 years. When I read the story about Joseph's brothers betraying him and selling him into slavery, something in you goes, that's not right. Something in you gets angry. What is that? What is that? What might it mean to re 
imagine your story. Verse 1, when Joseph could no longer control himself, we live in such a culture of control. We want to be in control, especially if we've been wounded deeply, and it totally makes sense. But Joseph can no longer control himself, thank God. He's letting someone else be in control as he grieves, that being God, I would argue. And he weeps so loud that his family hears him, the Egyptians hear him, Pharaoh's people hear him. And what is in the tears? Obviously the pain, but what is behind the pain is the longing. The longing for the Garden of Eden. The longing for what you were made for. In verse 3, how does the longing come out? Is my father still living? God, I miss him. Is my father still alive? That God put that in us as people that we want to be close to our fathers and our mothers no matter what faith you believe in. You may not have had a good one, but that you long for that. In verse 4, in the midst of his weeping, he tells his brothers who had betrayed him, come close to me. Come close. Why? Because his longing was to be close to his brothers. To be close to his family. He has grieved so deeply that everyone can hear it. He's beginning to let go of the anger. And you can never skip this step. In verse 8, this is the verse that sometimes trouble. So then it was not you who sent me here into my slavery, but God. Whoa, bro. Slow down. Pump the brakes. Please don't ever say that to someone else in their pain. Notice who says it here. Joseph's brothers don't say it. Man, it's so cool how when we sold you, it was actually God's plan. <laughs> Joseph is like in his 40s. This, this happened when he was 17 years old. He is learning to grieve. He is learning to suffer. And he can see it because he's de grieved deeply that there was something at work behind the evil that happened to him that was greater and more powerful. That there was a God who was working through that. So a couple things. Number one is Joseph was a kid when it happened. He's 40 now. It takes time to process these things. Number two, Moses tells us that God is with Joseph during that whole time. Even when he hasn't forgiven his brothers, even when he's still angry at them. Some of you may feel pressure. i got to forgive if I'm a Christian. And you may hear quotes, if you hold on to forgiveness, you're just punishing yourself. If you hold on to bitterness, you're just punishing yourself. 
takes time. Forgiveness is like a gift. It's like a miracle when it happens. Joseph claims this for himself. Someone doesn't say it to him. He is still working to forgive his brothers. This is when he's at 40, at the end of his life. He's still processing, really forgiving his brothers. It's a process. We live with a fast food Christianity. We want things to happen fast. We expect things to happen fast. Jesus forgave and I'll forgive. And there's a process and it takes time. And you need community. People to hold you in it. When we talk about reimagining our stories... We believe that your story matters to God and it matters to us and we hope it eventually matters to you enough that you take the time to listen to it. Number two, we believe it's important how we hold it and that we need to do so empathetically and with compassion and love and that's what actually enables you to do it with others. If you experience being held in empathy and compassion, you can then extend it to other people. At the end of the day, the reason we do story groups is because there's people in this world that we don't love. Because somewhere in our story, there's a wound, there's a pain, there's an injury that blocks us from loving people. We are trying to explore, to see where those places are so that we can have healing and that we can love. The Old Testament says, seek out the roots of bitterness in our hearts. And lastly, in your story, we do believe there will come a day, and there may be glimmers and slivers right now, when the darkest moments will be tied to incredible redemption. But we're not in a rush to get there. We do follow a God whose story led him to a cross where in essence he was sold into slavery. He took on our slavery for us on the cross. And our stories, when we cling to him, are united to his story that even in the cross, this most gruesome, humiliating, abusive thing that can happen to a person, that in our story, being united with him in that solidarity, that there is resurrection, that our stories begin to take on a whole new color. But we're not trying to rush there. We believe in a God takes his time with us. He's more patient than we are with ourselves. Let us pray.